You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Thank the Lord that I get to be here this week, or a few days of this week, to be blessed and to be refreshed. I got up this morning and I, and I just asked the question as I looked in the mirror, how is it possible to travel around the other side of the world, be eight hours off of your normal routine, uh, eight or nine time zones off, uh, waking up almost every night somewhere between four and three or three and four, um, being on minimal amount of sleep, and um, just feeling so refreshed. And I just thank the Lord. I said, Lord, this morning, if there's any reason that I get to stand in front of this wonderful group of people, it's, it's because of one thing and one thing only. It's because of the love that is in this place uh, that um, has endeared our hearts to one another. And so I just want to say thank you so much for the ministry that you've had uh, to our hearts, uh, to myself personally, to our family, uh, and also to the Greeks, and by extension to the refugees. Um, your love is making a tremendous difference and impact. And I just want to thank you, Stuart, Bronwyn, Jade, coming and sharing a year of your life. And uh, for all of you who have come over and participated, it just seems like the chains of blessing just continue to connect and extend and extend and extend. And there's no way to catalog all of the goodness of the Lord, to quantify the blessing of the Lord as his people live faithfully to his word and love him and await his return. So last night, Stuart was right. We, we just spoke about what is our compassionate response in the regions that we live in, in the countries that we live in, in the realities that we find ourselves. Um, we're not heroes. We're just doing the same thing that you're doing, seeing need and asking ourselves, what's our compassionate response? I just brought a couple little practical object lessons. I loved in first grade when we had to bring something to class and do show and tell. That was my favorite of favorite things to do. I mean, that's all I remember about school, show and tell. But uh, this, <clears throat> imagine tens of thousands of these towels. Imagine people getting wet coming out of those boats that you saw and having a towel to embrace them with. Um, we talked a little bit of their identity. I found this passport as I combed the beach the first time I went, middle of, I guess it was late August. And I opened, first of all, the uniqueness about this passport is there's nothing on the front. Yeah, there's nothing on the front. I thought it was like a, a fake passport that they forgot to print, that they, you know, you can buy passports now. And kind of do whatever you want. But then I quickly turned it over, and uh, the back side it says, Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. All of a sudden, right here, so there, this, is, this is somebody. This is somebody real who's from Afghanistan. So I quickly opened to see, find their picture, and I didn't see the picture, but issuing authority, Kabul Central Passports Department, Occupation, self-employment, 
height, 180. That was the first hint. I flipped over. There's a stamp, 16th of July, Kadahar International Airport, Turkey. Somebody wanted to ditch their identity as an Afghan and register as a Syrian for the hope of a better life in Germany. Multiplied by about 900,000 in the last year. Since we made the video, over 300,000 have come through Greece as well. But there's hope. You know what these are? This doesn't count. This is that right there. You probably can't even see it. It's a micro SD card. By God's grace and the love of many people, we've purchased 10,000, our first 10,000 of these little micro SD cards. We've got a system where we can program these and record on them the entire scripture in Farsi, in Arabic, and in one or two other languages. The entire Jesus film, children's helps, and a list of, of uh, other resources they can have, including address and information of resources they can get when they get to Germany or other parts in Europe. They're picking these things up like you wouldn't believe. They're putting them in their phones, and they're able to have the Word of God. Isn't that incredible? I'm excited about being here because you guys, under Stuart's leadership, have grown to love the nations. <clears throat> and I haven't been left with one question. Since so much goodness is happening right here, like, I'm just noticing all the kids that went through here. I thought, man, there's not a whole lot of kids, you know, there's a few moms and a couple kids, but that was just the beginning of the line. And, and we sang, you know, two two stanzas and the chorus and the next song, and they were still going. <laughs> and I happened to be in that room on, what was it, yesterday, with Jeff, and he was showing me around. There's no way all those kids fit back there. <laughs> there's no way. Maybe they're in the parking lot. Maybe, maybe there's some recreational activities outside, but I know that they didn't all fit in there. And then, with great pride, all the new chairs. But this place is full. That's not a good thing. There should be empty chairs. There should be room for more people to come and join because, of, that they're, they're, because there's so much goodness happening here. And this goodness and this love is extending its reach around the world. So I did something else yesterday. Troubled by this. You know, it's really hard when you're the missionary and you come back to a supporting church and the church that supports the, the work is smaller than your church plant. There's something wrong with that. Actually, we have a much bigger building, but a much smaller congregation. <laughs> but we've built in the capacity for growth. We're expecting that out of our city of 5 million people, that this building will fill. Because we believe this, this transformational power of God's Word. Amen? Okay, so, 
What's taking you guys so long? I noticed there's like two bolts on that beam and two bolts on that beam, and I'm sure the other two beams are similar. We could have this taken apart this afternoon. <laughs> We'd have to just erect a temporary bracing structure for these other beams. And uh, we could just take those uprights and then extend them, I think, about up to the road and then get new beams that will rise on top of those, put the window on top of this structure. And then I think we would like one and a half times enlarge this facility with very little cost. And, uh, and then Stuart will stand over here. And this will be the new facility for EBC. And I've, I've thought about the light, too. The light, when, yeah, I think that's, where would, you, would you stand here on that side? But anyway, the light would come down on the congregation. It would be beautiful. And then you could put some stained glass. Yeah, you could put some stained glass on there, and so anyone driving by would actually recognize as a church. And then <clears throat> that wing there, you've got you to change all of that. You've got to extend that to the road as well, and then you would have ample Sunday school rooms on that side if you could extend that by 20 meters. Of course, there's that other plan too that you could go that way, and then you could put Sunday school classrooms and everything underneath the veranda, and the baptistry could find a more permanent place. It's really heavy. I told Jeff, I said, you got to be kidding. You carry this thing every time? Like, why don't you at least put wheels on it? <laughs> Maybe it's a sign I'm getting older. I don't know. So that's, I don't know. I guess we just live life like looking at opportunity. You better stick around. <laughs> okay, if there's anyone that's concerned about the money, forget about it. We get stuff turned around all the time, you know? Everything's like a business. Got to look at our bank account first. And then we got to see what can be done. What does money have to do with anything anyway? There's enough money. I promise you. Money is not an issue. Vision is the issue. And as you enlarge, continue to enlarge your hearts for the nations, there's ample amount of money and whatever money is not in our bank accounts, if it's for the altar of the Lord, it will be provided. We started off doing this Bible project. All we had was a number. We said, wouldn't it be incredible if we could give a million Bibles to, to Greek people in rural Greece? Wouldn't that be incredible? It was a dream. It was it was something that we felt resonated in the heart of the Lord and it touched our hearts. And we're a small organization and, and we're lousy fundraisers. And somehow, somehow, this project has cost us, cost God, nearly $2 million. I always owe money, so I never realize what's already happened, but it's absolutely incredible 
what God will release and what God will do if our motives and our heart are completely focused on His glory and making His name known. Amen? Amen. So I just want to encourage you. I, I hope when I come back next time, there's capacity for more people to get this wonderful teaching and the young people in the next generation, that's the other thing that I like to think about. You know, we, we often do church for us. Well, maybe, maybe we have in mind the kids, but 80% of church happens for us. And much less happens for the kids. Let me challenge you with another thought. What if you do church and life thinking about not the kids or you, but your children's children and what their world will look like, what their reality will be like, what their platform for doing ministry will be like. We don't have that much time and life is fleeting, so the, the bigger perspective is always encouraging. <clears throat> I promised the kids um, that were here the other night that I would finish my story. <clears throat> so, for kids, are, are any of you here? What? Hey, didn't we have a? Didn't we say you guys were gonna sit in the front? What's the deal? <laughs> Get up here, all of you, right now. Look, there's all these chairs are empty. Come on, come on. You're gonna. You're with me. <clears throat> this is this is doing church. I love it. Okay. All right, guys, forget the rest of them. It's us right here. Okay, so we, um, I was telling you about that river trip with my dad and the, all the natives and how they were, they, we came around that corner and all of the bows and arrows that were stretched out and I was so scared. And, uh, and then when we finally got past it, I was relieved and breathed deeply, but remembering that... that Later that night, we'd have to come right back through that same area and uh, didn't know what we would find. So, and then remember I told you about how we went around the next bend or two and we came across another beachhead and there was more bows and arrows, more natives on the beach with the arrows outstretched and then how my dad did the little turnaround in the middle of the river. The river was about as wide as the church here and we were totally like within range of just getting pelted with, with arrows. And then Dad did what I could not believe. He started going towards the shore. And as soon as we got close to shore, they, they picked up their bows and arrows again. And Dad went back out, did the turnaround thing, tried to communicate to them to put their bows and arrows down, and came up again. And they, well, they laid them down. We approached the shore. And we did that two or three times. And finally, finally, we landed on the beach. And I didn't know what to do. I was so scared and so relieved at the same time. So that's says, get out of the boat. What? Get out of the boat. Here are these savages, no clothes, bows and arrows, headdress. It's about 11, 12 years old. I started going towards them. And then I started running. And I did the weirdest thing possible. I went and hugged them. I think it was just out of like relief that I was alive. And then my dad 
started trying to communicate with him. He, he's, I don't know how he did it, but somehow he communicated that we were about peace and compassion. And he had some gifts. Dad, dad was a master of having tricks in his bag. He had, he had a few gifts, uh, some steel knives. They didn't have any steel knives. Some fishing line. I'm like, yeah, Dad, they're going to go out and fish. <laughs> had some hooks. Had some salt. Had a few other things, and he gave it to them as a gift. They seemed to like it. They seemed to be relaxed, although a little bit nervous. And they put, they put the things aside. They kind of watched us a bit, and we slowly got back in the boat, and we continued upriver. The current was going down. We were going up. And later that night, we'd have to come back through this area. So we went way up to the headwaters of that river, and we focused on a little ministry that Dad had started with uh, um, another national that we'd put up there in the jungle. And then that evening, after we'd encouraged the local national um, worker that we had there, um, we were coming back down, and I noticed that we only had one tank of fuel. And we'd been driving a long time that morning. But fortunately, we are going downstream. And as we went, Dad reached over and he touched or grabbed the red steel tank and shook it. And I realized that he was getting concerned. But he didn't show it. Now, I'm thinking like, okay, fuel's going to end. We're going to just be drifting. We're in enemy territory. And it's all going to be over. They're going to come out and ambush us. There's no question. And so we drifted and drifted, or uh, continued on going, and all of a sudden the engine quit. My worst dreams, reality. We were at the mercy of the river. We couldn't steer the boat. And as we drifted, we went around one bend, avoided a log that was submerged and sticking out of the water, and came around the next bend. And all of a sudden, to my great relief, there was our canoe house that we had left earlier that morning parked on the side of the river, and we just coasted right up to it and tied off and jumped onto the canoe house, started up the bigger engines, and away we went. Whew. I'm here to talk about it. We lived. So our point was that as young people, you guys have to make your dreams. May they all be about the kingdom. You have whatever talents, gifts you have, ask yourself, how could God use this gift, this talent? How could God use me? What would it be that, God, that I could give to God that if it was in God's hand, he could use it and he could touch people's lives? What difficult things does God want me to trust him for his glory? And then embrace our fears and walk in the direction of our fear. And then as we overcome, we allow God's glory to to be manifest and revealed and people's lives touched. And one by one, we're going to impact this world for the Lord Jesus. Amen? And you know what this church needs more than a building? You know what this church needs more than anything else? It needs young people like yourselves. They're going to say, like David, where's my giant? In God's name, I want to be God's person. Short or tall, girl or guy, this is who I am, and this is what I have, and I want to put everything on the altar for the Lord Jesus and let the Lord determine what he's going to do with my life.
Not my plans, but the Lord's. Because he's got a plan. And he wants his light to embrace the darkest reaches of this planet in the days that we have left before his return. And then all this worship song, all these worship songs, they'll take huge meaning in our hearts. Amen? So, <clears throat> how much time do I have left? <laughs> to 11? Do you have to 11? Is that okay? All right. Don't go away. I need you guys. By the way, it's so much fun talking to you guys because you're, you're so attentive. And I really enjoyed the other night hanging out with you guys. And I, I really believe that the Lord has great things in store for this church because of your desire to live holy lives and to take a stand for him. Amen? So help me out now and uh, pray for me. And we're just going to, let me just ask the Lord's blessing. And then we'll read some scripture here. <clears throat> My Holy Father, I just ask you bless the remainder of this time that we share together for your glory. It's your word, Lord. It's your truth. And I just ask that by your Holy Spirit, you will just take the truth and just apply it to wherever the needs are in this congregation. May we leave here encouraged because you are among us and your word is eternal. Your truths are trustworthy and that you are a good God and a Father who delights in us as we take pleasure in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 8. Do you, you, you have to know that from a speaker's point of view, it's always an interesting experience when you walk to a church, you have your message prepared, and the night before, they say, uh, you know, we're doing this study, and uh, if you don't mind, could you preach from uh, the book of Joshua? Oh, well, what chapter? Well, anything. That didn't happen here. <laughs> but it happened in South Africa just two weeks ago, and I said, Lord, I can't do this. They gave me the freedom to preach on whatever else I wanted, but then I said, you know what? It was 11 o'clock at night when I got back to the hotel room. I said, you know, I have to honor the desire of the church. So I opened the scripture, and I opened up to the story that I, hadn't, I didn't remember reading. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to do a little reading. You guys can follow. Joshua chapter 8, and um, it's about the deception of the Gibeonites. Anybody remember that story? I mean, we, we, we know the story of Jericho and Ai, but the story of the deception of the Gibeonites? Man, I, I couldn't remember. I've been to Bible college I've, I've listened to thousands of messages. I just couldn't remember this story, but it was fascinating, so I want to read it with you. Verse 30 of uh, Joshua chapter 8. At that time, Joshua, at that time. What time was it? At that time. At that time, Joshua built an altar. What's so significant about that? We're going to read more than that. But that was the first thing that caught my attention. So I started looking back. It's a good thing to do when we're studying the Scripture. Look at the context. So I, I went back a couple chapters, and, oh, yeah, Israel defeated Ai in, in chapter 7, but before then they failed. And before that they had a victory. So it was victory, failure, victory, failure. And suddenly, it, it suddenly Joshua, you remember they'd conquered Jericho. Then they got confident like we often do in the Christian life. Ah, you know what? We don't all need to go out to war. That's small town, no big deal. We don't really need God. We can manage this. We can do that building project, not a big deal. We, we, can, we, can, we can go send a team to Greece. We, we can, we, that's not a big deal. You know, just maybe get the worship team up there, sing a couple songs. I think the Lord wants 100% of us in 100% of what we do. 
They sent 3,000 people out to fight little Ai, and they weren't careful about the sin in the camp, and they failed. And so at that time, Joshua decides he's going to do everything according to the law of Moses. So Moses had prescribed the building of an altar. So at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. And for what purpose? He wanted to bring everybody, everybody, when I say everybody, the entire nation of Israel before that altar as a reminder of who was at the center, the epicenter of their lives. There, there is only one audience, and that's the presence of the Almighty in our midst. The guys, young people, there's only one audience that you live for, okay? Only one. It's the presence of the Lord Jesus in your lives. You are worshipers of the Lord. You go to school, there's only one audience. You don't have to impress anybody except make sure that you impress God by your dedication. So at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and their officers and their judges, stood on the opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim. I like the way they divide the area. They need mountains to state the territory. Half of them in front of that mountain and the other half in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses' servant of the Lord commanded. So there's, you know, half a million people or more than half a million people on each side of the altar. That's a big congregation. And afterwards he read all the words of the law and the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. Verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all of the assembly of Israel. And I like this part. And the women, the Gospels always elevate the women. They're included. And the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. They didn't divide up into Sunday school. Everyone was there. And they read the entire law. Possibly it was Deuteronomy chapter 5 to 26, kind of the recapping of all the law. Long church service. But Moses, I mean, Joshua wanted to make sure that everyone was tuned into the reality that it was God in their midst. It was God who was before them. Now, wonderful things happen when God's people stand together around the presence of the Lord. The altar was, was, uh, signified the presence of the Lord in their midst. The incredible thing is, is that when God is glorified purely, 100%, that he's free to do his work in his body and through his body. And sometimes we think that we've got to go out and do conquest for the Lord, but things just happen because the Spirit of the Lord is at work and it's moving through you. He begins to, he begins to direct each of your courses independently and then together there's this incredible, 
incredible effect of God's presence that begins to flow through you to all of the places of influence and relationships where you work and live. So you come to the altar, you recognize the presence, you're filled with his presence because of the beautiful Holy Spirit, and as you take encouragement from one another and you spread to wherever you're from, that presence factor begins to take effect and influence people. So much so that people begin to talk about you. Not about you personally, but about us as the body of Christ. Now, most often we are fearful of what the world out there thinks of us. But as we focus on the altar, the Lord in a beautiful way begins to speak to people. On, you know, for, and for many years in Greece, we're the heretics. We're like the minority. We're, I mean, just imagine. Scripture was written in our, first written to the Greek people in our language. Sorry, Wycliffe translators, we didn't need you. And after so many years, up until the early 80s, we had a sum total of 20,000 evangelical born-again believers in our country. We were ostracized. The church was fearful of us. We were heretics. We were a minority. They beat us up. They, they mistreated us. The evangelical community began to hunker down, and over the years, no one wanted to rock the boat, lest the Orthodox Church spoke negatively towards the authorities about us, and we were, would come under fire. So, crisis arrives. Fires spread throughout southern Greece, and, and entire regions of southern Greece are burnt, and people have lost their cattle, their livelihood, their everything. And we, 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 we sit there and we say, what, what would the Lord want us to do? What's our reasonable, compassionate response? And someone had an idea that we should go plant trees. It, was, it happened to be someone else's idea. We said, we'll join it. So we went down and we tree planted for the Lord. And uh, as we were tree planting, there was, we met a farmer who had lost all his flock. And a compassionate response, what should we do? We need to help this guy. He doesn't have a living. And you know, we thought, we've got some sheep up at Porto Astro at our camp. We've got like 20 sheep. Let's just take half of them and take them down and give them to this guy. What would that look like? What would the gospel look like if we could help this farmer rebuild his livestock? He lost everything. So you know what was really funny? It was really funny. Um, really, really funny. Uh, one day, I get this, you know, they've got new toll roads in Athens. A lot of progress. Now we pay tolls. We didn't used to have to pay tolls. Now we pay tolls. So now the, the toll roads, they have a magazine, and they want you as a subscriber to their toll booth uh, little machine to get their news about how they're developing the toll roads. And I'm flipping through this thing, and uh, all of a sudden, I see this little picture, uh, like how the toll booth, I mean, the toll roads and the authorities help people that get stranded. And here was this blue van and all these sheep inside of it, like the back doors of these sheep in the van. I'm like, man, that's strange. What in the world? Those were our sheep. <laughs> and the van that whoever's van it was had a flat tire. <laughs> so here we are, man, in the national circular, you know, <laughs> our, our sheep. Uh, they, were, they were Christian sheep. <laughs> they, were, they, they worship. Worship. 
<clears throat> that was really bad. <laughs> it was really bad, but it was a trial. That's not my number one gift. <laughs> Compassionate response. The people of God together, encouraging one another. Amazing things begin to happen. And so... As soon as, chapter 9, as soon as the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard about this, modern-day Syria, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. They, they were nervous. Here are these people of God. They can walk across the Jordan River. They don't even have guns. I mean... Uh, I mean, they don't even have, like, war machinery. And the strongest fortification in that area just crumbles just because they're there. These people are afraid. What does fear do to you? What does fear do to you? Does it cause you to run or react? What does fear do to people around this community? You know, there's a really cool thought that's come to mind. I think... Fear should prescribe a need where people, when they hear about you in town, it should cause them to run to you. There should be people coming in the store because they're fearful and they know of your reputation. So look at this, verse, verse 3 of chapter 9. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning in Greek, it's ponirya, which is the same word that we use for the devil. And went and made ready provisions, listen to their tactic here, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they had a plan. Now, you know what's really amazing? These people understood covenant. Their plan consisted of, we're going to pretend like we're from a really far away area. We're not the neighbors that are going to get annihilated. They knew the law of Moses. They knew that God had prescribed that they were foreigners in that area and that they were going to be annihilated. And so their plan was, we're going to pretend like we're really far away and we've come a very long journey and even our bread, we're going to sell this line that the bread was warm when we got out of the oven and when we got here after these many, many days of travel. Look at our shoes, look at our clothes, look at our wineskins, everything's worn out. It's all happened on this trip. Now, you know what? We beg you, Joshua, and elders of the city or of the people of Israel, we beg you to have a covenant, make a covenant with us. And they knew that, the, that covenants, A, were everlasting and B, they meant security and blessing. And thirdly, that security was with the people of God. Isn't that incredible? And so they trick Joshua into believing that they're worthy of having a covenant. So we don't have time to read everything, but do read the entire chapter. It's interesting that at the end of three days after they've made this covenant, and by the way, there's a comment here that... Um, they didn't seek the Lord about this issue. And they just acted reasonably, the elders with Joshua. And they entered into a covenant with these people that were meant to be annihilated. And after three days, 
word comes to them that they've been tricked. And so then Joshua in chapter 22 summons them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are, from a very far, we are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants woodcutter, and cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. They knew the law. How? Either divine revelation or through word of mouth or they had gotten a copy of the law and read it for themselves. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them, and he delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, drawers of water for the congregation, and for, and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. The gospel was there hundreds of years before Christ came to earth. The gospel of grace, the gospel of forgiveness, the gospel of eternal covenant for those that trust him. Here are the people that were to be annihilated. We are those people. We are not Jews, but we've run to Jesus, and we've accepted an eternal covenant of peace. And what's our reward? What, what would have been our punishment has now been turned into a privilege and an honor bestowed on us. That in our lowly position, we would all be cutters of wood and drawers of water for the altar of the Lord. Is that cool or what? I remember when I first read this, something in my soul just lifted. I said, Lord, I'm not anything great. But because of your covenant, I am privileged to serve you, a Gentile accepted by your grace and called to build the altar, called to serve the altar, called to serve the, 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 the very essence of building the presence of Jesus among the people of the Lord. There are no extras here. There is not a single person that is extra. The Lord needs you the Lord needs your gifts. The Lord needs your talents. The Lord needs your abilities. The Lord needs your mind. The Lord needs your time. The Lord needs your money. Actually, he doesn't need it, but he's extending the privilege to you to be cutters of wood, drawers of water for the eternal altar of the Lord. I want to share that the altar is a dangerous place to go to. If you haven't been to the altar recently, maybe it's time to 
change something in your schedule and prescribe a chunk of time where you can go do business before the Lord. Maybe you want to kneel at your bed and close your eyes and imagine that there's an altar in front. And then just allow time to do its work and consider your life in view of the altar. What's on the altar and what's in your control? What is on the altar and what is yet to be put there? What, what is yours and what is the Lord's? Altars have a way of burning things. It's the essence. Carry your wood. Remember the story? Somebody was called to carry the wood and asked, but where is the sacrifice? We are the sacrifice. Christ died for us that we might die to ourselves. Take your dreams, take your bank account, take the things you love most, your children, and one by one, place them on the altar so that the very presence of Jesus might indwell everything that you are, that he might burn everything that is not of him. And the glory of his presence and the aroma of the incense will permeate to the far reaches of those who we think live in darkness and have not yet seen light. And they will hear of the majestic presence of the Holy One and they will run to find peace with God through that which you have. It's a beautiful story. You know, it goes on to say, you know, these, these Gibeonites are not <clears throat> lastly mentioned in this chapter. <clears throat> they, um, it's interesting because the, they became, they weren't the Levitical priests, but they became servants in the tabernacle when the tabernacle was built just as Joshua had commanded. Gibeon, the place where they were from right there in the nation of Israel, becomes a priestly city. It's where the Ark of the Covenant stayed for a good measure of time. Um, some of David's mighty men were from Gibeon, were Gibeonites. And um, something really, really cool happened later in the story of the Gibeonites. When Nehemiah had to go back and rebuild the walls. Guess who did the bulk of the rebuilding? It was the Gibeonites. They had stayed in the land. They weren't Jews. They didn't go to Babylon. They were left there. They were survivors, but they were the presence of the Lord, and they helped rebuild the wall of the Lord. You know, there's a lot of brokenness. First, we've got to come to the altar, put everything on there that's that we haven't sacrificed yet, so that the Lord is preeminent in everything. And then we're called on to be servants of his presence, every single one of us. Maybe we need to change this whole thing about missions. Maybe we just need to forget about that. We're all called to build the altar together. And then we've got to look around 
And wherever there's brokenness, we need to be the ones that are the first to go rebuild walls that have been broken, bringing security to people around us. Touch the hurting. Engage with the suffering. Lift the burdens of those who weep. Weep with those who weep. And tenderly rebuild that which has been broken. And the news of the kingdom will spread before us. And the glory will be great when people begin to put their faith and trust in the one whom we serve. Amen? May you be blessed. Thank you so much for this time together. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.